0: We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Levowitz, agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com.
1: I mean, every, every week I'm like, I have some epiphany where I'm like, wait, well, I think the answer is just sit down and just keep writing and don't get up from your desk until it's done but that, like, even if that works one week it doesn't work for next week
2: you're listening to the taste podcast I'm editor-in-chief Matt Rodbard here with senior editor Anna Hiesel
3: Today on the show, we have Pete Wells, the longtime restaurant critic at The New York Times. Also on the show, I'll be talking to Charlene Johnson Hadley, the executive chef at Brownsville Community Culinary Center, which is a really cool organization in Brooklyn. But Matt, tell me about the mysterious Pete Wells. (laughs)
2: It's funny. I actually had seen him a few times in restaurants over the past several years. Didn't tell him that, though, but his face looked kind of familiar. Um, but Pete Wells, God, I love that guy. He He's he's like one of my favorite critics for sure. And uh, we talked a lot about the restaurant reviewing method. How does he pick the restaurants uh, to review each week? How is he edited? Um, it's really fascinating.
3: Yeah, and just how to keep it interesting week after week when you have the same assignment.
2: It's true. And like we did, uh, speaking week to week, we talk about the deadline that looms every single week. Does it get easier for Pete Wells to file that copy every single week to his editor? The answer is, what do you think? No. No, it actually gets worse. Uh, It's a really fascinating conversation. I also asked him about, I asked him straight up, like, what should the next New York City mayor do to help restaurant owners survive in what is becoming a pretty apocalyptic real estate scenario? His answer is really interesting.
3: Here's Matt talking to Pete.
2: Hey, Pete Wells, thanks for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you. I'm so, it's nice to finally meet you. You were emailing in like t- 2015 one time about a meal and it never happened.
1: I know that happens with me a lot. I, my scheduling gets so complicated that I that, that even though I go out all the time, I I have a hard time fitting people in while I'm still yeah. thinking about them. And then
2: the wheel goes around and the wheel goes around again. And then I'm thinking about eight other things, you know. Because you're, uh, you need to go out for in the 20s meals a week just to keep up with your schedule. So scheduling must be so difficult. Do you have like I'm a terrible group? at it? I mean, I'm really, I'm
1: really. I mean, it's just it's a it's a much bigger part of the job than than people even would like to think about. I don't even want to make people think about you know how, uh, how major it is, but but. Uh, If you really want to know about it. I mean, it's not just like keeping like the guests straight and who's showing up on which night and who can eat which kind of food and and like, you know, who who, you know, has a gluten intolerance and who won't go to Queens. But but. It's also like, who am I on Tuesday night? So, like, I have to keep really careful track of like which name I'm using at which time, which phone number goes with that name, oh, and man. which email address now, cause, because now you almost always need an email address to make a reservation. So, which email address goes with which name? Which ones have I used too often? Especially, like, has this restaurant seen this person? That, that email. That name, before, that email yeah. before, right? Or have they seen that credit card before? Which is there's not too much I can do about that because I, I I don't have a million credit cards. But so
2: there's a whole bunch of like just keeping track of who I was the last mm-hmm. time. And then you got to worry about actually having a, an experience that's fair to you as the journalist and fair to the restaurant you're reviewing too. On top of all that scheduling, right? And going in and having a clear head, right?
1: Right, right. I mean, right. I mean, I try to to just. Come in and, and give them the, the the best chance I can, you know, like like sort of approach it in not just an open mind, but with with like a sort of an eager mind, you know. Approach it with some some uh hope that it yeah. will be good, because I think you if you walk in and you sort of oh, it's another restaurant. I don't know what they're trying to pull, but we'll find out, you know.
2: You, um, no, that's not just not how people go out to eat. I wanted to ask you about that exact point, because um, when you go into a restaurant, you you do have optimism, and I can sense that from your writing. You're a fan of restaurants more than anything. I get that vibe. But I wanted to know how do you, how does the process actually work? Like how do you, because you have to set yourself up to do something. Like how do you pick the restaurants? Really, like is it is it coming from your editor? Are you pitching? Is it a collaboration?
1: I pick everything. I think it should be that way. I mean, I'm lucky to work at the Times where there's a there's a, a strong sense that the critics in all the departments should really have their have their say. Um but I think that the choice of what to review is is it, that's that's an opinion in itself. Right? I mean that, that you've already you've already cast a vote when you've decided to write about a place or not to write about it um uh you've you're casting votes all the time in sort of what kind of place do you th- gets into your into your sights and yeah. what kind of place doesn't do you never look at cheap restaurants that's a that's an opinion you know do you never look at very expensive restaurants
2: that's an opinion too um, you also have to be pretty cognizant of the Uh, The openings and what what's happening in New York as a whole. Right. Like, you know, there's like certainly trends you have to follow. You often you do a recap of many restaurants of a certain type. Right. So you stay on top of that. Is that your own research or are you working with your editors in the desk to get get that kind of thought? together
1: I wish I had somebody doing some scouting for me I mean that was a thing that I, I think like Jonathan gold
2: had, uh,
1: had over the years was his little he, birds he had right right <laughs> he had he had people sniffing around it and I would love to have somebody like that I mean I have a few people who just do it out of the goodness of their hearts they they you know tell me about you know things going on and flushing's a you know a good one to keep tabs on but but uh, in general I'm sort of on my own and there are different You know, there are different kinds of restaurant hunting. So there's one kind of restaurant hunting where I, like, read the column in The Times where we talk about openings and and chef changes, and I do that. And then there's another kind where you kind of follow the, you know, Eater and Grub Street news, and that's all kind of, you know, we could call them mostly mainstream places. And then there's another kind that's much more, like, Burrowing down into the woodwork, uh, reading the sort of you know uh, some Instagram accounts and some uh, some blogs of people who who just go to the maybe only places in their neighborhood or only places in mm-hmm. you know one part of the city or only places in a certain price range. Um, And that's a much more, like, scattershot, impressionistic view, but, but, like, that stuff can be really interesting, too. Um, I've
2: I've, uh, reviewed restaurants myself, and I've also edited longer than I've been reviewing, but I, I hear... I hear you. What you're saying is you're an editor at heart. I mean, you're using, and, and I think I wanted to talk about your editing career because I think some of our listeners don't realize that you were an editor before you were the restaurant critic of the New York Times. You uh, edited the section, the the dining section um, at the New York Times, and you also edited it at Esquire and Food and Wine. Uh, details. I'm oh, sorry. Yes. Oh man, I made that mistake. Oh, That's shit. okay. You, I, I'm, I'm okay with it. You, I, I mean, eh. details is gone nah, now, you, so they can't they can't get mad. They were gone, and also details at the time you were there was like fucking dope.
1: It it was it was a good time it was a good time to be there we published like weird we just weird stuff um, yeah you did you were but but tell uh, me um do you miss editing i do a little bit i do a little bit um um but i have to say that you know my my goal all along from like the the day i moved to new york was to be paid to be a writer and this is the first you know time I, in my life i have been paid to be a writer so i'm uh, not really eager to uh Move beyond it. I'm like very, very happy to take my check from the New York Times for writing. It's it's great, you know. But but there are things about editing I miss. and I sometimes just you know like that way, like you when you're, it's like sort of sitting at the edge of a poker game watching people play, and you just want to be like, no, 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 no. you know. Like I, I have that impulse all the time watching, not just. The Times, but any publication, I'm like, oh no no, this this story over here is a kind of interesting. What well, about what are you doing? Why did you fall for that one? Well, that's not a good story. Yes, I totally uh, agree. You you play armchair editor then. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that impulse does not go away. Yeah. But I'm I'm very happy to to be uh, uh, responsible for nothing but my own uh, column every week. You know, when you're an editor, you're like everybody's problems are your problems. And when you're a writer, it's just your
2: problems. Yeah. and you can make them your editor's problems. You can, which is a wonderful opportunity. It is beautiful to, to switch between worlds. Um, I, I love doing that. But also, when you're a writer of a column, you have that deadline. Yeah, that's looming. How do you how do you uh, negotiate? That deadline? Do you have any? I I don't. I really don't do very well. I keep thinking I'm on the verge of figuring it out,
1: but I haven't. (laughs) I really haven't. I mean, every every week I'm like, I have some epiphany, where I'm like, wait, I think the answer is just sit down, and just keep writing, and don't get up from your desk until it's done. But like, even if that works one week, it doesn't work the
2: next week. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, um, like, one of the unwritten rules of restaurant criticism is that critics don't tend to punch down. You know, bad reviews mostly go to the industry giants, but like, where do you draw the line? It's it's got to be a tricky line to negotiate.
1: Huh. I don't know if that was always an unwritten rule. I mean, I think if you, we hmm, go back to you know some of, they born? Yeah. Well, he would didn't tend to be he didn't tend to be that nasty. But if you go to some of Mimi and stuff from the seventies and eighties, I mean, she would take down the the <laughs> the. the place serving minestrone and spaghetti and she would just tackle them you know um uh i think i think maybe it's become more of it's become more important because the readership is different now if you were just writing for like you know i think in her days she was writing for readers of the of the newspaper who lived in new york city and wanted a place to go on friday night and now you know uh, all of us have this international audience so if you if you realize that the Person in like Moscow was reading this, like it makes you think twice about about really laying into somebody who the person in Moscow has never even heard of. You know, so I try to I try to use I, I don't use the person in Moscow as my, <laughs> as my as my editor, but I try to I try to use the idea of like how how much do I have to explain to people. What why I'm reviewing this restaurant before I start explaining how bad it is, you know, um, and and if it's a lot, if there's like if or if there's no like there's no good reason to be reviewing it, then you ju- you just shouldn't be doing it, you know. And
2: oftentimes, I, I get a sense just from speaking with critics is you you will do those first or even second meals. And not write a review. Does that, does that? Yeah, there's a lot of that. Talk there's, about that because that's there's unknown. There's a lot.
1: I mean, it's 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 unknown. It's pro- it's probably. I don't know if it should be known or not. But but there. Um, I don't have somebody just handing me a sheet of paper every week that says you're going to review. You know, uh, bong bar. I I I like. I mean, the average week, I go to at least one meal that I end up not doing anything with. Sometimes it's a old an older place that i'm just checking in on but more often it's a new place that i had hopes for and it's either you know um um, gail green has this great phrase where she she says it's it's uh it's
2: it's not good enough or bad enough to write about yeah right and that's as a diner we experience that as well like we go to restaurants that aren't good or bad and we just don't know what to think about them we typically don't return though to those.
1: Yeah, you don't return and if you don't think too hard about it you can have a decent night if you're with people you like, and so you know I mean a lot of I mean I've had a lot of nights that have been saved by a decent bottle of wine
2: <laughs> Let's talk about um some sp- specific stories um you wrote a, a truly epic uh rundown of the Korean restaurants in Queens that you smartly called the kimchi belt. I just want to know like why are more New Yorkers not heading out for these restaurants? I feel they're still underrepresented
1: they're still under I mean, I actually don't know who goes there, but I but I know I know that that um, those restaurants out there are not talked about in the way that I think they should be. The quality I think is is much definitely higher than what you get in the Manhattan uh, Korean restaurant district. Um, uh, but people talk about that all the time just because it's central and never, we we everyone's been there. Um, I mean. Even before I I started that piece, I didn't know how far out the uh, Korean restaurant district extended. I mean, it goes beyond the borders of the city out into Nassau County, and you can just keep going. Oh, my God. You can take the Long Island
2: Railroad out to, um, like, Murray Hill. Right. What's another community then that you um, maybe want to focus on for future columns or maybe just in general you just are interested in, in, in learning more about?
1: I you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that, that, um, I'm curious about it. I don't really know if it, if it would rise to the level of a story, but there's like a whole bunch of like, um, Jamaican places out in like, like beyond Ozone Park that I'm kind of interested in. And there's like a, um, there's this, the this, this sort of, the area of like the, the Guineas restaurants. That's like, I don't even know what neighborhood that's called. Um, um. Still in Brooklyn. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or actually I think it's in Queens. Mm-hmm. Um um and I'd like to like at least like get my head around it cuz I think sometimes with with like with these neighborhoods like you can't really just go to one restaurant. You have to go to a few Three's and a then, trend, they say, right right? right? right. So you go to f- a few, and you start to get a sense of like, like, well, which is the one? Like, the reason, the reason I ended up doing that that um, Korean piece uh, that we're talking about is, is that I, I went out to kind of find like one that would be a fun surprise review, and I kept trying to pick like well, the one, like, what's the one restaurant going to be? And then I was was got to this point where I, where, which you get to with Korean restaurants, you're like, well, this one's really good for beef barbecue, but this one's good for pork barbecue and this one over here does the certain kind of noodle really well. There isn't really one restaurant. There's just a whole bunch uh, that you would go to for one dish and then and then, you know, like a year later I finally yeah, you wrote the wrote piece. The piece. Yeah. Um uh and, and I think like, you know, it's you sorta of have to approach these um um restaurant neighborhoods this the the same way, like 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 there's five Haitian restaurants within a couple of
2: blocks. Like chances are, they're each doing something pretty well, and maybe there's yeah. one that's better than the I others. It would have to be extraordinary, though, for for the times that commit to a full. I feel like when you make these choices, like the kimchi belt story, it has to be an extraordinary trend. Um.
1: Yeah. Well, that was just. I. I just. I was like, oh, my god, <laughs> there's so much out here. Like, yeah. there's just you know, there's so and, and the and the quality of even like the the little porridge place is yeah, like so is good.
2: You know. Um, I wanted to ask you um how do you write an exciting review for a boring restaurant and when was the last time you had to do that? Well, you know the place I did
1: last week um Benno I think some people would would call a boring restaurant yeah. and I think i you know I mean there are ways you could describe it and make it sound boring and and part of the uh part of the you know what I was trying to say in that. Review is like there's nothing trendy here and 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 it's almost like like a rip van Winkle restaurant where the, where Jonathan Menos like slept through the last fifteen years of of restaurant history but but uh he just knows what he's doing I mean, the food was really delicious but that you know. And then I don't know what's like what is exciting anyway is 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 novelty exciting like that's one of the things that that gets people out to restaurants like oh I've never tasted this before or, this combination of ingredients is completely new to me or this is a new neighborhood where I've never eaten before but then it's only novel once you know right. it's only like like things are only new the first time and I think we have this crazy. Uh, accelerated cycle in in the in the food world, at least in New York, where like everybody wants to go to the new place, and then three months later it's done, and then nine months
2: later it's closed. It's done, and then, and then it's closed. Or the and, chef has moved on. And or like, this, yeah. t- I think it, it makes your job extraordinarily complicated and difficult because you have to negotiate the feed- feedback loop, being very quick, and also. Um, know that this is the paper of record and you know your reviews matter it's 40 a year and i mean that must drive you a little crazy though because you want to make sure you're relevant because being relevant is key to a critic but also being you know reviewing the benos of the world the classically trained and the people who have spent the time in the industry in this restaurant world you pay respects to the heritage but you can't always just do the geezers right right you can't always do the geezers right you know respect to benno he's not a geezer but that was just a general yeah no he's not he's not he's a cool he's he's got a little ways to go yeah but you know what i mean yeah i don't know i mean you try not to,
1: to to jump on things that are just trend driven or i mean i don't tend to be that interested in the club restaurants that are sort of like you know, ridiculously expensive and DJs and bottle. Actually, I don't even know what they do. I, I I could. I mean, that may be completely inaccurate, but but there are a certain kind of restaurant that's like, the food is like the the fifth most important thing going on. And I tend not to go to those. Um, uh, and then there, are, you know, there are places that are scenes. But I think that's much less common than it was. Like in the 70s and 80s, where a place would just become a scene, for no nothing to do with the food. Like Elaine's was the most famous example of that where the, everybody said the food was aggressively bad, but but it was a scene, you know,
2: and I think it's harder to pull that off now. I think people will not tolerate bad food. Hey, I want to ask, are you traveling still for your reviews? I know that you did that for a while and it was cool to see you out of New York, um, but also, I mean, that must have been really hard. It was a little difficult, It's it's um, but, but fun, and I just get... If,
1: I think without even realizing, it, ended up taking a little break um, the last few months. Um, but it's probably time for me to get back on the road again.
2: What's, what are cities that excite you, just in general, being very broad?
1: Uh, well, I mean, you know, there's certain cities where you, you can just land and know that you're going to find something, even if the place that you thought was going to be your number one pick turns out to be disappointing. You spend a couple days there and you'll come out with a story and that's always been the case in like when I've gone to Los Angeles San Francisco Chicago I uh, um, I've gone in with a with a list and sometimes the one that everyone's talking about is just it's <laughs> not you right you're kind of like well why why are we all talking about this restaurant um, um, but you eat it you know, eat eat a few more meals, which when I'm on the road, it means like, you know, maybe a couple of dinners and uh, as many lunches as I can fit in and then drop in somewhere else for appetizers. Um, and then you try to zero in on the on the place that actually is interesting. Yeah,
2: yeah. it's it's got to be challenging because, you know, parachute journalism is something that a lot of people have criticized. But you also want to take your palate on the road like you have a lot of experience and it'd be, it's cool to get your take on some of these restaurants.
1: I think what you know with this kind of, uh, at least the kind of writing that I do, and most most of the the people I know who are on a national level are writing about restaurants. They are journalists. They're they're doing a lot of work. They do a ton of work before they even get on the plane, and and they've called a million people and read a million reviews and. I mean, God, we even go through Yelp, you know. Like, like yeah. give us some some credit here. We're putting in the time, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, and then you know, uh, and then we show up, and, and there can be a lot of bad meals. And there's a and we we're th- throwing stuff out that we're throwing out meals and that that don't really hit the mark. Um, I don't know. Is there a better way? Like, I, like, I don't know what it is. I, I,
2: I think you've okay. articulated it clearly. There's good journalism, bad journalism. There's a lot of prep work. There are bad journalists who will just literally show up and go wherever the gram sends them, and it's not really journalism. Yeah. I wanted to get back at New York. Um, you know, what should our next mayor do to improve the life uh, for restaurant workers here in the city? Well, 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 well. Um...
1: I don't know. I mean, I'm not really a policy person, although I certainly have a, opinions about things I'd like to to see. I don't know how to implement them necessarily. You know, I would, would really like to see Fair hedge. restaurants, like you know, I'd like to see, I'd like to see, I think a lot of us would like to see restaurants become more professional, less abusive environments. We'd like to see, you know, uh, um i think maybe just in the past year like sexual harassment has gone from being routine to at least being questioned you know um and and we'd like to see it go to, to become non-existent right we'd like to just see it go away um uh can the mayor help with that i mean honestly i think for one thing like just some education would be really useful even were. though we all complain about having to go to these, you know, HR um, um, seminars about about sexual harassment, and everybody says they're useless. So they're not totally useless because they did give you the message that, you know, there is a policy and it's not cool to do. And
2: I think one somebody on Twitter proposed this. I thought it was really interesting. You know, if um, if uh, a restaurant owner, the, the 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 person with the name on the liquor license, is convicted of a sexual crime, they they risk losing their liquor license which everyone knows um kills a restaurant yeah right i mean the pro- the problem is you're you're pushing it backwards on like what's what's going to be the
1: the 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 fact finding uh body that's going to decide who's committed a crime but like I don't, you know, I um I mean the courts. Uh, the, I mean you would hope the courts right, would right. But then we all know that these things don't don't end up in court very often for a lot of a lot of good reasons. Um, um you know, the like I I have a um fourteen year old who's allergic to very seriously allergic to nuts, peanuts and so on and and so for all those years we've been taking him out to restaurants and talking to them about his allergies and just in that relatively short time, restaurants have gotten so much better about it. They actually like in the beginning they would say like, "I don't think we use any of those things. He should be fine," you know. And of course, you're like, oh, it "Should yeah. be fine" is not quite what we're not looking quite for the here, mark here for a right? <laughs> And now like. Wherever you go, like a, where like serious restaurants or like the coffee shop on the corner, they'll write it down. They'll go talk to the chef. They'll come back and talk to you. And I think that has a lot to do with um, uh, some education programs that have gone on where this, the cities and the, the health department have like really seriously like talked to people. And they all have that poster now that you've seen even at your yeah. local pizza place that doesn't have any nuts. Yeah. Uh um. Uh, and I don't know, maybe it's just time to treat,
2: you know, uh, physical and verbal abuse in restaurants like a public health issue. I wanted to talk about de Blasio has floated this idea about um uh, a vacancy tax. So after a year um, of a vacancy, the landlord is then charged a tax and that money goes back to. Um, economic redevelopment, I mean, that's a huge problem with restaurants, is being kicked out of their spaces um, and losing their leases because of these these drastic rent increases, but then of course the the space sits empty for years. So, I mean, is this something that you feel is viable? Um, I mean...
1: Again, I'm very wary of policy things because they all there's always like the the consequence you didn't foresee. But yeah, I think that that is worth looking at. I think there are like you know, commercial rent control maybe is worth looking at. You know, other uh, um, other ways of like you know keeping businesses in places. those businesses are really part of the culture of the city, and not just. The restaurant, but the the you know the handmade toy store that's been there for forty years, and the, you know all these
2: <sighs> places that we just see disappearing. We've We're seen replaced, our neighborhoods yeah. in Brooklyn. We both live in Brooklyn, and our neighborhoods. I'm on near Smith Street in Carroll Gardens, and I think you're nearby. Like, what's happened to our neighborhood? It's it's Smith is a, is a is a great example of kind of
1: run runaway greed where where it got hot. The restaurants raised. the I mean, the landlords raised the rent, it got hotter, they raised the rent some more, it got hotter, and they raised the rent, I think, way too high now because the restaurants are all gone. Like, all, you walk up and down that strip, and you think about what was there 10 years ago, and there are only a handful of survivors.
2: Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, bettersby just closed, right? which is one of the few. I mean, there are people sticking it out, but, but you're seeing this in, in many neighborhoods, West Village as well. Right. How do we keep our city whole? I mean, it's really sad seeing all these great people lose their businesses and move out of New York. These food—I mean, talking about food people, of course. I know. We're so passionate about it. We love these people, and we're, it's sad. It's fucking sad. I know, right? And then, and then, you know, I think the
1: in the old days, what New York had going for it was that, like, it was the place where you could become famous, and now you know chefs and food people can can become well known in all sorts of cities and and you know Esquire will send its restaurant reviewer to to Pittsburgh and you know uh, there's are plenty of paths
2: now to national recognition if that's what if that's what motivates you mm-hmm. do you regret any reviews you've been doing this for a while there's been a lot of reviews we all have regrets i regret publishing stories and writing opinions i regret i regret tweets and instagrams I might rev- I regret some reviews I wrote when I was writing reviews. How about yourself?
1: I think I I think from from my the early year to the first year maybe or the, I mean maybe it went on longer first year and a half. Um, I th- think maybe if I looked back at those now that some of them would strike me as like um, the. The negative parts were more negative than the positive parts were positive, and um, so places that I I may have been kind of on the fence about um, because I didn't really know how to control – the the spin on the negative things they just seemed awful. You know, you would just get get to them and never never want to go there. At least that, that's
2: that's my fear. Are there any names that are floating in your head? There aren't really. Yeah, any, yeah, yeah. There
1: aren't really any. Um, uh, the other thing is, I, I think there are some places that I did just because uh, it's they they were getting so much hype. There were places that were that were just like. Everybody was going there, and they had sort of successfully like positioned themselves as like the restaurant of the moment. And I felt well, well, if one must weigh in on this, because the whole world cares. And then six months later, like we've said, nobody even remembers these places. And there are a few of those that I wish, and I could name them, but I'm not going to, because it would just feed into the (laughs) the machine. But but there are a few of those where where I wish I had just sat it out um, and looked for something. That had some genuine interest instead yeah. of manufactured
2: interest. Nice I want to ask you. You're, you're a true Timesie, and you've been at the at the publication for a long time. I want to know so who are some of your uh, favorite Times writers that you regularly read. Uh, obviously, food desk or non food desk.
1: Oh gosh, well let's see. Um, um, I there's there are some there's so many. I mean, I I think I read all. All of the opinion writers. Um, I've I've lately. um, I've always liked Gail Collins, and lately I've sort of gone back to her, almost for because she doesn't scream. You know. I I was thinking about this when when I was reading the Russell Baker obituary this morning. Uh, um, He had that sort of gentle, mocking sense of humor that's sort of vanished from our conversation Now there's no conversation people just yell at each other and so i you know i appreciate of course all of my
2: i love i love i love dwight i mean i love dwight I, um, everyone loves dwight yeah I mean. <laughs> right anybody um, writes about with criticism is like that guy is pretty special right
1: he's great i mean he makes me feel he makes me feel like i'm in the right place like when i'm well, sometimes yeah. i'm wondering like does anybody even care about criticism um and and, and it makes me feel like okay, maybe the Times
2: does care about criticism, maybe there's a reason we're all here you know I love that i i think I think many would say the same about you. I think you make people feel let like with your reviews that um you know that this moment is important, it gives gravity to food in a cool way, so I'm gonna say that
1: that's great.
2: Yeah. Hey, man, are you still do working on watercolors? I was noticing on your Instagram over the past maybe year, you were you were showing some interest. Is that is that I a was, hobby? I was. I was. I've sort sort of. Um.
1: I've stopped working with color for the time being. I'm just doing like a little bit of like some pencil stuff, and I have not been making the time for it uh, that I'd like to, which is bad because when I, then I go back to it, and I've forgotten everything. But. Uh, it's nice. I like it. It's good uh, but, stuff. Yeah, well, I found that it was it was incredibly useful to me because um it's one of the few things that that's completely nonverbal. and uh cooking is is pretty much that way, but I don't get to cook very much. I I'm just not I'm not at home um uh, for dinner. So, uh but you know, when I'm in the kitchen, I can really be like just you know, you just work at the stove and you and you turn up the heat, you turn down the heat, and you taste it. But it's not it's it's not going through a logical side of your brain it's, uh, if you if you know what you're doing. And drawing is sort of the same way. It can, it can it's a form of cerebral
2: activity that's not really linked to language. And I found that I really needed that. I wanted to go over a couple quick. I, I think I wrote quick NYC stuff in the notes, but. The dollar slice or the four dollar slice?
1: I mean, preferably the four dollar slice would cost one dollar, but I think the quality of the four dollar slice is going to is going to uh, get my vote. You know, I'm pretty excited about uh, uh the, you know what's happening in in Slice Land right now. It's it's cool. Uh, do we have good
2: Mexican food here in New York, Pete Wells? We do,
1: we do. Just maybe not as much as as we should, or not. You know, <laughs> I uh, um. I'd like for there to be more of it, but yes.
2: Yes. We hear that it's, all the time that there's no good Mexican food in New York and yeah. it drives me crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, you certainly don't want to get in a war with like any part of California over this, but no, but we're, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't even want to get in a war with Philadelphia over it, frankly, because I think that
2: they've got a really uh, cool Mexican scene going on right now. I'd love to read your t- your, uh, t- your take on that. I think I, I agree fully. Uh, and also want to go back and plug Korsha Wilson wrote that story. So check it out. Google Korsha Wilson, New York Times. Uh, the best barbecue in New York, I feel uh, this is not like the smoke, not Korean barbecue, but just like barbecue. I feel New York has great barbecue. Like I feel like we're a city that has people who know what they're doing with, with wood and smoke and meat. I think that is true or was true. I, barbecue is one of those things
1: where um, if you haven't um, studied it for a while, you can fall out of touch pretty quickly. So it's actually been a couple of years since I went around and hit all the major yeah. contenders, like like more than, more than a few years. I mean, I think like hometown's the one I've been back to most recently, and, and I think – uh, Probably the most impressive, at least for brisket. Uh, but there's some others I need to go back to, and then there—I don't know. There are a lot that people talk about that I think are not even worth mentioning. But. I know <laughs> you give me
2: that look, like man, you don't know what I'm talking about. And I—I I think I haven't really made the run in a few years too. And you're that's really articulate and smart because we—we we don't. I don't like keep tabs of these things. Like I don't yeah. know. That I I did a story about it like five years ago and it's in my head like wow I was surprised but this must get at you a little bit when like the fast moving scene like things change quickly right your opinion yes. actually will change because obviously the quality of the cooking de- increases or decreases
1: yeah I mean that that the brisket doesn't smoke itself it's <laughs> like there's somebody there and if that person leaves or gets yeah. bored or doesn't or like you know wants to earn more money than, the, I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why a uh, barbecue restaurant, can, especially in New York, can be really good when they first open and they're trying to get uh, get themselves on the map. And then after two years, you know, you're somebody wakes up and is like, oh, do I really have to put the brisket in at four in the morning? Like, really, really? Yeah. Maybe I'll just turn the heat up a little bit higher. and
2: Sleep till five. Yeah, right.
1: And, um... And honestly, like where if, you know, in Texas, if somebody tried to do that, they, they'd they have customers yelling at them that morning in New York. I'm not sure the customers
2: are aware enough to, um, to push back. I agree. Last one. The last meal you truly enjoyed off the clock, the restaurant meal, that is. Oh, yeah, I got to cook last night. So that oh. that was that
1: was Oh, listen about that. Yeah, I made a uh, I made a um uh an Indian uh chicken that was really really simple, just some um clove and cardamom and uh chili peppers and and then,
2: you know, of course, ginger, garlic, onion. Really simple and Tell me, um, do you have a book in you that's that that you really want to do?
1: Oh, like- uh, nothing that I really want to do, but I'd like to find one that I really want to do. You know, I can think of ones that I don't want to do.
2: <laughs> you can do a memoir, like, born <laughs> like around. that's what I don't want to yeah, do. Yeah, assuming
1: that I don't really want to write my, my my food history. It's just not that interesting,
2: even to me. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's some interest. But there must be some. There must be something better I could do. I wanted to ask you, so with all the interviews we run um on our uh on the taste podcast we we, we commission um a really fun illustration shout out to Paige vickers, who's our our vikers it might be either way um our illustrator, but obviously we can't with you, you're anonymous, which I respect, so tell me. Who should be your stand in for the illustration that we commissioned for the Pete Wells Taste Podcast interview? Oh, you can have, <laughs> could be anyone. <laughs>
1: I, you know, I've started to really identify with my, my Muppet avatar on Twitter, although now I, I'm not sure if he's Waldorf or Astoria. Um, uh, uh but I love. I love the way he he just puts this grouchy spin on whatever I say. Even if it's not grouchy, you read it next to his little face, and and it sounds like, I like I'm waving
2: be, my cane. And Get I feel off. we might be sued if we if we
1: replicate <laughs> no, a think, Muppet. Yeah. So let's pick somebody. I'm amazed that I've I, that that no one said anything to me about it. Yeah. Um, um, you so it should be a, a like a like a,
2: a non-trademarkable person.
1: Well, I don't know. Why can't it just be? some better-looking version of me, you know, just make me, like, so insanely attractive that I'm unrecognizable. Can't you You're do a that? you handsome guy. I will attest
2: to that, so I, I, won't, I won't take that answer. I can't... I don't want to... I want to...
1: Can I be an animal?
2: Yeah, you could be an animal. Let's start.
1: I mean, uh, yeah. Fascinated by anteaters, you know? The, like, the sort of that... The idea of, like, these... They stick their tongues into places where they can't see, you know, which is like a weird metaphor for for a lot of things, I guess. But uh, um, it's such a um, frightening but maybe inspiring way to get your dinner, you know.
2: Um, An eater it is. (laughs) P. Wells, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Here's Anna speaking with Charlene Johnson Hadley.
3: Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Charlene.
0: Thank you very much.
3: You are Thanks the executive chef at Brownsville Community Culinary Center, really cool organization that I've heard so much about. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
0: Sure. Well, we're located in Brownsville, Brooklyn, and we are a facility that um, is there to serve the public. and and with us serving the public we look for local residents who have interest in culinary arts and we pretty much bring them in we vet participants who are interested in learning about culinary arts and furthering their education and about just about every 10 weeks we take on a group of approximately 10 people and train them.
3: And it's and paid, right? Like yeah. a paid
0: apprenticeship? Yes, program. they're paid. So the program is a 40-week program, but the last 10 weeks are outside of BCCC.
3: Cool. Kind of like a traditional externship program? Yes. yes. Why Brownsville? Why did the co-founders choose that neighborhood in Brooklyn in particular? Uh, the
0: co-founders were looking for a place that had like a grassroots organization sort of background and because they felt like whatever was done uh, needed to have people who are very much community oriented and it's not just about those who are opening and or running the space but the people who are very interested in having the community involved as well and so The co-founders are uh, Klaus Meyer, um, the co-founder of NOMA, and Lucas Denton, who is a a social justice activist. And uh, they met by chance in a bakery. Um, And they just started talking. Right. Perfect place to meet. And um, they just started talking. And uh, Lucas has previous history to working in Brownsville and I, with him having his social justice background, he's worked in very many places in Brooklyn. And I believe that Klaus was interested in opening a location in Brooklyn. And that was, um, Brownsville was the area that he thought was ripe and ready. Because when you look around Brooklyn, um, there are very, all, all the spaces have been discovered and rediscovered, but who's coming to Brownsville no one really you know um, and so they needed opportunity you know and so they wanted to provide that opportunity in that neighborhood very specifically
3: and you're from Brooklyn right yes where where did you grow up
0: I grew up in East Flatbush Brooklyn cool Mm -hmm.
3: so as someone with a chef background and formal training you went to the French Culinary Institute yes I did Cool. How different is the training that participants get from BCCC from, like, the, that, like, really traditional culinary school training? Well,
0: I can say, um, if I compare it to my education that I received, that this is a lot more hands-on. A lot. And it's definitely a lot more involved because in culinary school when I was there it's like you come in you get to work you know that was pretty much it but like we have a lot of participants who beyond their education they need assistance and we get down like if to the root of what their problems are you know if they get anxious when they're in a certain area well why are you anxious what can we do to help you how can we facilitate your education and traditional
3: um, restaurants, and right. Culinary schools well, that, don't they, they don't do, do that. that. Like
0: my, I can't yeah. recall any of my chefs asking, "Well, Charlene, how are you?" Like they, yeah. I can't necessarily say that they didn't care, but I was never asked. And you know, um, we definitely when, where we see a need, we get involved in that need and of course it's not forceful at all you know if we see a need we offer assistance and if we're told you know i'm good okay so we leave it alone but if you need something we don't want you to feel we understand that um your needs directly reflect on how you take in this education you're being given and if there's something that you're in need of we try to support you really and yeah and then also you the groups are small and so the chefs are literally right always right there so you know in I might be dealing with eight people at a time where um in culinary school I had more people it wasn't a lot more people but you know I am right there (laughs) like all the chefs are literally right there
3: what about in terms of the things that the participants are actually cooking in on a day-to-day basis? Are there things that they are learning how to cook that you never experienced when you were in culinary school or vice uh, versa?
0: No, I mean, like, the menus obviously are different because in culinary school, um, at a certain level, we started to cook for the public. And that's what most of their training Um, that's where they get their training, when they're actually doing for the public. And um, the menus are different, definitely. Um, The menus that we had at FCI were a lot more French and a lot Mm -hmm. more um, classic. Um, But um, at the end of the day, for me, food has nothing to do with what you're cooking, its techniques. In order to cook you have to understand technique so the techniques are there so the, there's a focus on techniques
3: so at bccc there's obviously this uh, educational component but then there are, there's also this public facing cafe and bakery right mm-hmm. that the participants in the apprenticeship are actually cooking and baking for mm-hmm. how do you go about designing that menu were you, did you participate in that do the students participate how did the menu come together? Because it seems to be everything from, like, a good, healthy breakfast, breakfast sandwiches, oatmeal, to uh, black-eyed pea falafel and green curry soup. Mm-hmm. So how did that come together? What was the vision behind it?
0: Well, previous to us opening to the public, we, um, we as in the chefs, were we would sit and have weekly meetings, and we thought about who— were living in the neighborhood and um, people who might possibly come to the restaurant and what sort of foods they would be interested in or what could be easily uh, presented to them without people feeling... As if, like, this is too strange for them to eat. Or, um, so we sat down, we talked, and we, we like worked on menus. We would come up with, uh, concepts and we would prep it out and make it and present it. We would sit down, and our whole staff would sit and eat and think, you know, say, what did we like, what we didn't like, and, um, just sitting, sitting and talking. And as, so we opened with the menu, um, and saw what worked and in real life. And since then, we've taken some things away and added some items.
3: Were there any, like, kind of big flops? Were there any things that people just didn't really order that they were kind of con- confounded by?
0: Um, No, not confounded, but things that couldn't come out in a realistic amount of time. Like, things that... Um, if we could do in advance, um, would work very well. Um, but in reality, in the pace in which you need to move in a cafe, which is pretty quick, you know, you expect to get your food within, you know, eight to 15 minutes, let's say. Things are just, were just, weren't timed well, so so there were some things taken away because of that purpose but not because people didn't like it this particular item that I'm thinking of is called the patty pies which um we uh we had in our cafe and we would do it in we would present it to lots of different groups so like when we were we would do like we would work in like fairs and things of that nature um they were always loved, but it's like in the reality of service and doing multiple things at a time, it became too difficult because yeah. it's all handmade. Um, we're making a dough from scratch. We're making the filling from scratch. We're hand, you know, mm-hmm. patting them. It, it was a lot, but they were delicious.
3: You have a pastry background, right? You're a pastry chef at Red Rooster?
0: Yes, I do have a pastry background. You um you work on
3: I, the, the baking part? at bccc as well well um i don't
0: necessarily work on it per se but um i am very close to the baker there um chef susan frankson and we collaborate so like um you know i'll say to her chef i want a bread and i want it to be rich and i want it to be this size and it should this be this many grams and we should put this on it and she'll say okay so how about i do this and i'll add this to it and be like great And she'll just go. And, you know, she just knows what I want. I can literally have a conversation with her in less than two minutes. And then she produces the next day. So it's great.
3: That's really cool. Have you guys worked on any new dishes recently or any new bread? Well,
0: uh, coincidentally, we started a uh, vegan burger yesterday. And, yeah. And so she did, like, uh, 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 the bread that she did was, let's think of, like, a pretzel roll meets a brioche
3: bun. Ooh, but yes. it's vegan. How do you And
0: make- actually, no, I'm not sorry, I did say vegan, but mm-hmm. I should have said vegetarian, because okay. there is egg in the dough, and uh, so, pardon me.
3: <laughs> what is the patty like? How do you make a good... Actually, that, that's the one item that
0: we're not making we're purchasing. Oh okay. Um so we are this like I said it was just started yesterday so we are trying to we're comparing and contrasting the uh burger patties right now. We're buying the burger patties which strangely enough when you look at our menu we make absolutely positively everything from scratch but we are mm-hmm. um testing uh to particular vegetarian vegan based uh patties. And and then so and everything else is that we're making so um but it sold out. Yesterday, the customers were raving. One guy had three, and these wow. burgers are substantial in size. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it um, it was hilarious to me. He ordered two, and then he took one to go.
3: And I was like, oh my god, <laughs> you know? that's like the best compliment a chef right. can Right, it get. really
0: is. It really
3: is. Something I always wonder. I always ask chefs about this. Kind of like, how do you go about creating a neighborhood restaurant that really feels? Neighborhoody, and that feels like it's kind of like has some of the personality of the neighborhood, but also isn't going to get overrun by tourists from, you know, San Francisco or something.
0: Right. Um, I think the first thing that you have to do, and I don't think it's about food at all, to be very honest. I think it has to do with hospitality. The first thing that you are going to, um, encounter when entering a space is hospitality that should be the first thing you know how you're greeted how you feel the music that's playing um how familiar like you you can walk into a space and you've never been there before but it feels familiar or cozy or you know what i mean and so Mm -hmm. you have to be very deliberate in all those things And then, you know, after people feel comfortable and they pick up a menu and they see things that either intrigue them or that are familiar. And definitely the combination of those things, the things that are familiar, things that intrigue them and things that just simply look delicious. So, you know, though, when you have those things, um, that combination, and you can, when you are talking about our space, our kitchen is open, which is very popular now. I started yeah, in I a time think. where kitchens, there was a very deliberate back of the house and very, you know, specific front of the house. But like our space is very open and the openness feels welcoming. And, um, you know, most people who come through the door know that uh, the people, the majority of the people walking around are participants who are in the learning and so they understand that and um and and you know they're taught to be uh this is your space yeah. you know treat people like when you're bringing someone into your home
3: yeah it pays mm-hmm. off yeah how why do you think that has become so popular having the open kitchen and be, being able to see people because
0: I think it has to do with people just being curious. You know, food is a billion dollar industry, and the reason why there are so many food shows and there's a whole network to fight, uh, dedicated to food is because of the interest. And so, like when people are can see what's happening it's It's interesting you want to see you want to see the intensity on the people's ways when they're putting mm-hmm. things together or when they're cooking. you want to be able to and and the fact that it's not hidden also allows you to feel like um it raises standards, you know. You know, um, you know. There was a time where people would say like there would be a chef in the back and he's sweating into a pot. Well, that's not happening when a mm-hmm. a, a kitchen is open. You know what I yeah. mean? And you're um, not like
3: you there's you can't like defrost secretly defrost like right. frozen dinner rolls right and an present kitchen. them
0: as if they're a house made. Yeah. People and know. yeah, you know there's there's no secrets. There's nothing to hide. And when you come into a space where there's nothing to hide, people. Um, that also adds to that comfortable feeling that we're looking.
3: And to the people give cooking people. the food get to see when someone orders a third veggie burger, right? Which is right. Cool. And when they are happy with it. Yeah. You know, or like they can
0: be um they're there for a compliment. There's a difference between, like, a waiter bringing you a compliment and a person telling you a compliment directly. So, um, you know, and they can feel proud about what it is that they're doing. So,
3: Yeah. You mentioned that most of the things served are made totally from scratch. Mm -hmm. Is there an emphasis on local ingredients or things that you could find easily in Brooklyn, or are there Ingredients that you wish were included in the menu that are just like too hard to get.
0: Ah, uh, no, we try to be seasonal. We do, um, and we we try our best to be seasonal. So we consider what's a, a, like availability, um, ingredients. Uh, of course, we try we try to be fresh and so on and so forth. But um, a lot of the ingredients, I think, the participants come in knowing, but they may not have handled. Or they may not have um, seen in its original state, right? So maybe ginger root is something you've walked past in the supermarket a million times, but you've never handled it and you don't know how to do it. But you're familiar with the taste and you're familiar with, you know, but now it's time for you to get familiar with how to use it and, and so on and so forth. So... um yeah, um, they we have a very we we're dealing with things where we have a emphasis on healthy we have a health an emphasis on uh, seasoning with the purpose of flavoring but not over salting like there's a t- you know people just people are gung ho with salts you know I. As a chef, I always notice when a person receives food and shakes salt on it Mm -hmm. before they even tasted it. And that makes me nuts. (laughs) But it's also, um, you know, we are located in Brownsville and they have a very high diabetic rate and a very high, like, high blood pressure. And um, a lot of diseases that if you control the food that you ate we are trying to expose them to nutrition that they may not have every day in their homes and understanding why just enough salt or lightly salting your why you know you want to consider that you're making a sandwich well there's salt in the bread there's salt in on the meat that you're doing that everything has so you don't want to go heavy and And there's a reason you don't want to and and understanding how the balances of the spices that are in things contribute to the flavor and it's not the emphasis shouldn't all be on salt or sugar and things of that nature um we do have like the juices that we produce we are juicing fresh we are Doing all these things fresh, and they're lightly sweetened, but we do have simple syrups. You know, if there are people who are like, they desire more sugar. Um, but we want to be the alternative. We don't sell sodas, and if there is something like a soda, it's because we're making it, so we're adding uh, seltzer. We really want to be in an alternative to the, the fast foods that, because in the neighborhood, the all that can be eaten. It's pretty much predominantly fast foods. Um, Brownsville hasn't had a sit-down restaurant in about 50 years. So um, this is all new to the residents. I mean, they can obviously go outside if they want to, if they're celebrating and they want to go to a restaurant and things like that. But to have one across the street from you or down the block and around the corner, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and and having a space. So we want to just uh, provide people with a different... Uh, experience.
3: I guess just in December, right, you had uh, Carla Hall come in and and cook for a little Mm pop-up benefit. Are you working on any other collaborations or any events coming up?
0: With the Carla Hall events, that is something that we do about every three to four months. We would have a guest chef come in and they would come in and speak to the participants about their food story how they got involved in the food industry whatever it is that is you know on their particular radar um, exposing the participants to it because we want them to understand you know it's more than just being a chef or just being like maybe a maitre d or, or a waiter or something like that there are very many things that you can do from this industry um and we would have them come in, we would speak, and then we've had events where we've just brought the public in and have them have an opportunity to sit down and, and have these same conversations with these particular chefs. Um, we don't have anything on the schedule right now, but we are having a fundraiser in March um, because we're a not-for-profit at the end of the day Mm -hmm. and we do need to keep the lights on (laughs) and we um so we are we were having a fundraiser and um you know all the money that we that's donated goes right back into C, you know getting aprons and you know
3: And tickets are available to the public? Can can anyone come? Uh, Of course, definitely.
0: (laughs) We're not turning anyone away. What
3: will the food be like?
0: Um, The food is going to be, uh, like... African diaspora, essentially most of, all of our food is Um, yeah, uh, Chef JJ will be donating his time that's JJ
3: Johnson JJ
0: Johnson, yes, from the Henry we have had a few of our participants go and work there we have one working there right now, I believe and she's doing well
3: Cool. well, Charlene, thank you so much for coming and talking to me
0: thanks so much, I really appreciate it
3: The Taste podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.